This is the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Thank you, Rachel. I would invite you to open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 5. We are in the middle of a series that we're calling Doing Church God's Way. The first week, our lesson was Rethinking Church. The second week, we dealt with the topic of rethinking prayer. And in that lesson, part of rethinking the way we pray was to pray for boldness. And so today, we want to get a glimpse of the boldness of the early church, and our lesson will be rethinking boldness. And, and by the way, if you're new to this church, and uh, I don't know, I think we've got a couple here maybe that you're, you're fairly new, uh, but when we get in a series of messages, we basically take a topic, and I talk about it until you're sick and tired of it. And then we go to another topic, and I talk about it until you're sick and tired of it. Um, I, I'm, I'm really joking. I hope you don't view it that way. But we are spending a, a few weeks in the book of Acts. And, and you may not be as fired up about the book of Acts or this series as I am, but I'm loving just um, digging, researching a little bit about the early church. Now, I wish I had a time. I, I had time to do a full review of the first two lessons, but we've got a ton to cover today. In fact, I'm going to be doing well to get out by the time uh, you're supposed to be in Sunday school. But if you didn't get in on one or maybe um, e- either the last two weeks, since each week is a building block, I would recommend that you get a CD or a DVD or, or listen to the podcast. And for those of you that are in another generation, sorry, we no longer offer cassette tapes nor VHS tapes nor 8-track tapes. Uh, I remember when we used to duplicate these uh, DVDs. Anybody remember, man, we would have a stack sometimes uh, of DVDs. We no longer offer those. Sorry about that. No long play records. We don't have those either. Sorry. Um, <clears throat> okay. If you're part of this church and, and most of you on a holiday weekend, you're obviously, you know, you're, you're the choir, you're, you're here, you decided not to go out of town this morning. But for those of you that are part of this church, I'm going to pick on you just a little bit. Is that Okay. Is that all right? You're just suddenly not part of this church, huh? Uh, and, and if you are not typically a person that comes to church regularly, then this is a great Sunday for you to be here because you've always thought, you've always heard that there were hypocrites in church. Well, we're going to confirm your suspicion here in a few moments. And if you've ever thought that churches were just dysfunctional institutions, well, we're going to let you listen in on our dysfunction today. Sounds like a fun day ahead of us, doesn't it? Let me try to set up our lesson in a roundabout way by making a a rather strange statement. Here it is. We as Americans are very fearful and paranoid people. In fact, the world laughs at our paranoia. Uh, I was in another country, and I, I can't remember for sure, but I think I was in the Netherlands, and I believe it was Amsterdam, and and I overheard some people talking about the paranoia of Americans, and they were referring to how safety conscious and how protective, and in in their minds, it was overly protective that that we've become. You know, we have seatbelt laws, we have baby car seat laws, we have helmet laws for motorcycles, and now, even though it's not the law, yet certainly recommended that bicyclists wear helmets, and And as a mountain climber, I even have a special helmet for mountain climbing. Now, before you get too upset at my uh, opening statements, I know we've got a highway patrolman here, so I've got to be careful what I say. 
But I, I, I want to make it clear that I'm not against these laws nor recommendations. And even though I survived my childhood without a car seat, and I survived my childhood without a seat belt, and I survived riding in the window behind the back seat, and I survived riding in the back of a pickup on the highway, and I climbed mountains for years without a helmet until about three or four years ago, I, I do realize that seat belts, helmets, all of the above will save your life. So I'm not opposed to them. L- let me keep going here. Furthermore, because of our fear and paranoia, that has then led us to almost all of us having an attorney. And I realize that the former prosecuting attorney is here. And so I've got to be careful what I say on this end. But, um, you know, we almost have an attorney on our speed dial. And then we have a bunch of insurance. We have identity theft protection. We have surveillance cameras. We have so- home security systems. And, and again, there's nothing wrong with any of these things. But here's where I'm going with this. All of this fear, all of this paranoia that we have in our everyday life has crept into our Christianity. And has crept into our prayer life. And the result is that we live our lives scared. And we go into a defensive mode where our safety becomes our number one priority. I'm telling you, there are Christians in different parts of the world that if they heard our prayers, they would gag or or at least laugh. You know, when American Christians pray, oh, God, help us to have a safe trip, people in other countries are like, wait a minute, your roads are awesome. Have you seen our roads? In fact, I've uh, I've got some roads here. This is uh, those of you that went with us on our last trip to Bolivia, our, our missions team missions trip, this was a road we went on and, and we were actually on bikes, but this is uh, a road for vehicles. This is called Death Road. And uh, I don't know why it's called Death Road. I can't, uh, I can't imagine that. Um, this is a road that took us down to our churches in the jungles. And, and there are many times that I would be coming back late Sunday night and there would be so much fog here I could not see and I would ask one of our pastors that was riding with me, would you please get out, walk right in front of me because I can't see the road and you kind of direct me. We've got another picture here. Um, and so, you know, these are, uh, this is a common thing there and the, uh, you know, the, the, the person that is, is coming up has always has the right of way and so you've got to, if you're coming down, you've got to back up. There's one more picture there. Um, just gives you a, a perspective. And incidentally, those of you that went with us, you remember that the Bruggeman family, they had a terrible time on this road when we were riding bikes. In fact, uh, Jared and Hannah, they crashed and Jared broke his arm. Luckily, they didn't go over the edge. They went into the, uh, alongside of the mountain. There was a little ditch there and, and, and they crashed in, into that ditch. Um, but, but anyway, what, what I'm, what I'm trying to say is, is, uh, people in other countries, they, 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 they're like, have you seen how we travel? I mean, we don't have guardrails. We don't have seatbelt laws. Many of us don't ride in cars. We don't even ride in the back of pickup trucks. We ride in the back of trucks just stacked in there. And you saw some of those trucks. And, and uh, there will be 100, 150 people stacked in the back of a truck. And their attitude is like, you Americans make me sick. You, you pray, God, protect me as you drive six blocks to church. Now, 
I, I'm, I'm a firm believer in praying protection prayers. In fact, my wife is on the road right now going to uh, a family reunion in, in, in Michigan, and, and, and I've been praying protection for her. And, and, and there's nothing wrong with, with praying protection prayers. And, but do you, do you see how people from other countries that don't have roads and, and safety laws and features like we do, they might look at our prayers with a little bit of disdain? Or, or we pray, God, help me on my test at school. And their reaction is, oh, your kids get to go to school? How fortunate. Or, or we pray, oh, God, uh, bless me. And they're like, what? You mean you don't have enough already? I mean, the, the truth is that some of us have more money in the little change compartment of our car than many people have in their entire life savings. And we see a penny or a dime or a quarter on the sidewalk and we don't want to pick it up because it might be too dirty. But we're praying, oh, God, bless us. Anyway, paranoia seeps into our, our, our thinking as Christians. And, and out of all of the Christians in the entire world that should feel the most secure, we end up being the most fearful and the least bold believers around. Now, again, don't, don't get mad at me and say I'm telling you not to pray for protection on the road or I'm telling you not to wear your seatbelt or your helmet or what. what no, that, that's not what I'm saying. I'm, I'm a firm believer in all those things. But the point is that our whole focus to be safe in our society has bled over into Christianity. And we as Christians have become more concerned about safety and comfort and making sure that we don't get hurt or sued or criticized or that we don't make anybody mad Rather than standing up for Jesus Christ, we've lost our boldness. And by the way, welcome to the Church of God Holiness where we always make you feel good about yourselves. <sighs> Let me say something really fast. When it comes to our blessings, you should never feel guilty for blessings. But you should feel responsible. And let me repeat that. You should never feel guilty for blessings or riches unless you got them by unethical or unlawful means. But, 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 but otherwise, don't feel guilty for the blessings and the riches God has given you, but do feel responsible. God gives us wealth not to use selfishly so we can pamper ourselves more and more. But if God happens to bless you with wealth, it's so you can be a blessing to others. Well... That's kind of a scattered approach to our intro, and I know that introduction would have probably gotten me an F in my preaching class in Bible college, but my professor's dead and gone, so I'm not worried about it too much right now. Let's get to our story in Acts chapter 5. Last week we said that Peter and John got arrested. They spent the night in jail. They were released and, and later gathered with about 120 other followers of Jesus. And, and right after their boldness got them thrown into jail, would you believe they were praying for more boldness to share the message of Christ? Well, more and more people began embracing the message. Word went outside of Jerusalem that something unusual was going on. And, and dozens and then hundreds of people from their surrounding communities began to flock to Jerusalem. And, and they brought the sick and the lame, the blind to be healed. And, and so now the city of Jerusalem that was already full of guests because it was a time of a Jewish festival has even more people. Well, the movement or the ecclesia that we talked about the very first week, you know, the assembly, the gathering that was following Jesus Christ, because of the excitement and, and the miracles, this ecclesia, this movement began to get all of the attention. And this was tough on the religious leaders or the experts in the law because they had always been the one to get the attention. 
But now all of a sudden, nobody was showing up for their worship services and, and no one was asking them the hard questions anymore. And, and there were now empty seats where the seats used to be full and suddenly these experts in the law, they were not the cool guys anymore. They were not the going church in town anymore. And reading between the lines, maybe they, they began saying, hey, uh, hey, Gene, I've missed you in church recently. And, and maybe Gene said, well, Peter healed my grandma. He ain't much of a preacher, but he healed my grandma. And so we're meeting with this other group now. And plus, all you ever did was read from the book of Isaiah, and it never made much sense to me anyway. I, I just made that up. But, but, but that's kind of what was going on. Well, well, Luke tells us that the religious leaders became jealous and, and they found themselves on the outside looking in and they didn't like it one bit. So they sent the temple guard to arrest all the apostles. And remember, again, last week in our lesson, they arrested Peter and John, but now they gave orders to arrest all of them. They, they, they were thinking, OK, if we can get all of the leaders of this group, then that will surely put an end to this ecclesia, to this movement. So they arrested the apostles and put them in jail. And, and in their minds, they were probably thinking, okay, let's let them spend the night in jail. And, and jails at that time were miserable places. And there were, there were rats. And, and, and it was cold. In fact, when we, uh, when we traveled to Rome with, with our group that went to Israel and then to Rome, we, we got to tour some of the jails there. And they were miserable places. And so, uh, you know, th th they were probably thinking that a little bit of jail time would just kind of scare the Jesus out of them. And the movement would fold. Well, during the night, night, Luke tells us that an angel came and opened the door and all the apostles walked out. And, and so the next morning, the religious leaders and, and the lawyers in particular, they sent to bring these guys out. And of course, they disappeared. They, they looked everywhere in the jail. And, and, and what, what's so fascinating to me is the Bible says that the, uh, the angels came and opened the door. But then when they came back, when they came back, the, you know, the, the, uh, the guard, the door was locked again. So they let them out and, and the angels locked the door behind them. That's, that's pretty awesome. And so they looked all through the day, uh, jail and, and they weren't there. Well, the next thing they heard, the apostles were back in the temple area preaching the name of Jesus and the resurrection. Well, as you can imagine, the religious leaders, they were absolutely furious. And, and so they got the temple guard together and told them to go rearrest these guys. And, and Luke says that the temple guard went to arrest them and and there were so many people gathered around Peter and Andrew and James and John and all the other apostles that, that the temple guard, they were afraid to arrest them. They said, you know, if we use force to arrest them, the crowd will probably stone us. So we don't know the details, but evidently the temple guard worked their way through the crowd and, and maybe went to Peter and, and he was the number one guy and said, Peter, we were sent here to arrest you, but we don't want to make a big ruckus. I mean, the people might get riled up and could stone us. So could you just kind of peacefully follow us? Because the Sanhedrin would like to ask you some questions. Well, Peter and his disciples complied and, and, uh, and the disciples complied and, and accompanied the temple guard back to the Sanhedrin. And, and this is where we pick up our reading, Acts chapter 5, verse 26. And I'll be reading out of the NIV today. Acts 5, 26. Having brought the apostles, they made them appear before the Sanhedrin to be questioned by the high priest. We gave you strict orders not to teach in this name, he said. Now, notice something here before we move on. And this is so interesting. They said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. They didn't even want to say the name of Jesus. Process that for a moment. It's interesting that 2,000 years later, even in our culture, the name of Jesus is still disruptive. 
You can talk about religion. You can talk about God. You can talk about a higher power. You can talk about the force. You can talk about the man upstairs. But as soon as Jesus is mentioned, things can start to get tense. But anyway, they said, we gave you strict orders not to teach in this name. Verse 28, yet you filled Jerusalem with your teaching and are determined to make us guilty of this man's blood. Now, this is about two months after the resurrection and, and the high priest is saying to Peter, Andrew, James, John, uh, look, the way you talk, it appears you think we're guilty of killing Jesus. And I'm sure Peter is standing there thinking, well, in fact, you are. <laughs> you know, I'm Peter, remember? I was there. I, I denied Christ, but I came back around. And Peter was saying, you're guilty. You had him arrested. You had him tried. You had him crucified. You're guilty. Well, Peter continues on in verse 29. Peter and the other apostles replied, We must obey God rather than men. The God of our fathers raised Jesus from the dead, whom you had killed by hanging him on a tree. There's Peter again, blaming the religious leaders for Christ's death, whom you had killed. Well, verse 32 then is what puts Christianity in a completely different category. It says, we are witnesses of these things. In other words, this, uh, you know, this thing about Jesus, it isn't just something that we heard. It's not something that came across in the rumor mill. Um, It isn't even something that we just believe. This is about something we saw. We were witnesses. In other words, Jesus being crucified, rising from the dead. We don't just believe it. It's not a rumor. Come on, Caiaphas. Come on, members of the Sanhedrin. You were there. We all know these events happened right here in this city. So we are witnesses of these things. And so is the Holy Spirit whom God has given to those who obey him. And I don't know if you've noticed this account, Peter is like a broken record over and over and over. It's resurrection Jesus, resurrection Jesus, resurrection Jesus. I realize that after 23 years at this church, you could probably tell some of my stories for me. You could probably predict how my sermons are going to start and how they're going to end. Sometimes it all probably sounds like the same message with a different title, just, I mean, just a broken record, and, and I'm sorry about that. I wish I were smarter and more creative, but, but you know, Peter, he did the same thing. He couldn't stay away from preaching the same thing. Jesus crucified, resurrected. But let me say this. When you preach Jesus crucified, resurrected, r- resurrected, that's the basis of the gospel. And it doesn't matter if you get stuck on that topic. Jesus resurrected. Well, verse 33, when they heard this, that's Peter talking about the resurrection and and, and Jesus and, and the religious leaders putting him to death, they were furious. Not just aggravated, but furious and wanted to put them to death. And they're probably thinking, okay, we got rid of the main ringleader, Jesus. Now, if we get, can just get rid of, rid of the rest of these leaders, then maybe the wheels will start to fall off of this movement. Well, then something really fascinating happens. And, and I love this next part. And, and jab your neighbor. Make sure they're awake right now. You know, the, these are some of the verses in the Bible that if you're just trying to get your Bible reading in for the day, you won't catch what is really going on. This is so rich. Check it out. Verse 34. 
but a Pharisee named Gamaliel, a teacher of the law who was honored by all the people stood up in the Sanhedrin and ordered that the men be put outside for a little while. So he was saying, guys, before we decide to execute another group of people and make 12 martyrs instead of just one, uh, I have an idea, but I really need you to escort these guys out of the room. I don't want them to hear my idea. So they took the apostles out of the room. Gamaliel began to share his idea with the Sanhedrin and the high priest. And here's what he said, verse 35. Then he addressed them, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. In other words, you better think about this. Verse 36. Some time ago, Theudas, also correctly pronounced Theudas, Theudas appeared claiming to be somebody and about 400 men rallied to him. He was killed. All of his followers were dispersed and it all came to nothing. So let me explain here. Gamaliel brought to their minds a guy by the name of Theudas. And by the way, there's no extra biblical record of Theudas. The, the only thing we know about him is this verse right here. That's it. Nothing else. But apparently Theudas somehow stirred up a group of people and had 400 followers and he was claiming to be somebody important. But, but Rome said, I don't think so. And, and, and basically they just squashed him like a bug and his movement died. And, and those in the room in the Sanhedrin were going, oh yeah, Theudas, now that you mentioned him, I remember him. Yeah, he, he created quite a stir. Yeah, it's coming back to me. But you're right, Rome took care of it and movement died. Well, Gamaliel kept talking in, in, in verse 37. After him, Judas the Galilean. Now, we do know a, a good little bit about Judas the Galilean. There, there is some extra biblical literature, or in other words, some literature besides the Bible that talks about him. Judas the Galilean lived at a time when the governor of Syria decided to do a census, and it would have been around 6 or 7 A.D., the purpose of the census was trying to figure out how much money people made, how many people had moved into the area so they could more accurately collect the taxes. Well, evidently, Judas the Galilean said, no, 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 we're not going to participate in a census. And so he started a movement against the government. And, and just a very interesting historical note here. The people that followed Judas the Galilean were the first group known as zealots you've heard the word the term zealots that's where it began followers of judas the galilean were called zealots in fact one of the followers of judas the galilean later on became one of jesus disciples and he was known as the zealot so everybody in the room was again tracking with gamaliel yeah yeah we not only remember Theudas, but we also remember judas the galilean well, uh, there in verse 37, Judas the Galilean appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in a revolt. He too was killed and his followers were scattered. And, and so the members of the, of the Sanhedrin were going, yeah, we do remember. Now that you bring it to mind, we remember the revolt over this tax thing. And Rome squashed it. And so what Gamaliel was saying was, and this is important. He, he was saying, we were so politically perfect in both of these situations. We didn't get involved. All we said was, hey, Rome, you might want to pay attention to these situations. But we stayed out of it. And Rome came in and solved our problem for us. 
So, so Gamaliel was saying, let's not get our hands bloody. Rome is not going to let this area of the world get out of control. Well, Gamaliel ends his little speech with, uh, with this verse 38, Acts 5, 38. Therefore, in the present case, I advise you, leave these men alone. Let them go. For if their purpose or activity is of human origin, it will fail. In other words, if this is just another movement with people who have some radical new ideas, that's going to fail because Rome won't let it succeed. And by the way, this is also important to note, Romans, Rome in the first century, they were not so much against Christianity. Sometimes we say, well, Rome was against Christianity. No, they weren't so much against Christianity. They were just against any movement or gathering that might disrupt or undermine their authority. That's the problem they had with this group. And then listen to this last bit of Gamaliel's insight, verse 39. But if it's from God, you won't be able to stop these men. You will only find yourselves fighting against God. Now, pause and listen to the implications of this statement. Gamaliel was saying, the only thing that could, the, the, the only thing that could really overcome the power and control of Rome in this region of the world would be an act of God. That's the only thing, because Rome was so powerful. Question, did it, did it happen? <laughs> was there an act of God? Did this movement last, or was it squashed by the Romans? You know, just for curiosity, um, how many of you have visited the modern city of Rome a few of you have in fact when again when we took our trip to israel a few years ago we um toured israel and then ended back at 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 rome and um do you know what there's more of in rome than any other city in the world crosses And so today, even though there's no Roman Empire, yet in the city of Rome, which is considered kind of the epicenter or, or the capital of Christianity, Gamaliel was exactly right. The only thing that could strong-arm Rome and, and create momentum bigger than Rome was an act of God, which indeed did take place. This movement was not like the movement of Judas or Judas the Galilean that was squashed. It was a movement that would gain momentum. It was a movement that would last. And ladies and gentlemen, it's in good shape today. The witness of Jesus Christ is going far and wide. Well, the Sanhedrin liked, uh, liked his reasoning. Verse 40, his speech persuaded them. They called the apostles in and had them flogged. Then they ordered them not to speak in the name of Jesus and let them go. So they were convinced. But before they released them, they had them flogged. Now, what does it mean to be flogged? Well, you say, well, it means to be whipped. Or if you're from down south, you say whooped. But what does it mean to be flogged? Well, if you saw the Passion of the Christ, how many of you saw the Passion of the Christ? 
quite a few of you did, um, you saw Jesus being flogged. And if you're like me, after a little bit, I had to turn my head. I couldn't take it. Being flogged was not just a little whipping. Being flogged was a cat of nine tails with pieces of wood and pieces of steel tied into the ends of the strips. Being flogged was being whipped until the skin was ripped off the stomach and the back. It was a lengthy process. Which means in the case where it said the apostles were flogged, it means that more than likely for several hours, the 12 apostles, or possibly the 11, if Judas hadn't been replaced yet, but the apostles probably stood in line and watched as the temple guards flogged. And this is what they did for a living. They were, they were professional floggers. That's what they did. Anyway, they, they, they stood in line, watched as the temple guards flogged and permanently scarred the bodies of them and their closest friends simply for talking about something they had witnessed, the resurrection of Jesus. Which means that every time in the future they would change shirts, every time they would bathe, there would be the visual reminder of deep and ugly scars of this day that they were flogged. You see, the temptation as you read this verse is to think that they were whipped a little bit like a parent might whip a child that's been misbehaving. But this process of, of the apostles being flogged took several hours, maybe half a day. And, and while this is going on, you're listening to your closest friends groan and wince and maybe scream out in pain all the while knowing you're next. And again, this was not for committing a crime. It was just because of something you saw and believed in. Let, let me pause here for a moment. You know, for most of us, including me, the very thought of being flogged, the very thought of being whipped with a cat of nine tails and having pieces of bone and steel go into my stomach and back, rip them with deep wounds, the very thought of that, I'm afraid, would stop my boldness. And I wonder if that would have been us because of our fear and paranoia and desire for an easy Christianity. Would the message of Jesus have moved beyond the first century? Well, how... Uh, how did the apostles react after the flogging? Are you ready for this? This will blow your minds. Verse 41. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Oh my goodness. You're possibly permanently scarred, maybe even disfigured. For the rest of the, your life, the scars will be on you. But, but you don't... <laughs> would you track with me here? You don't find them huddling together going, Oh, why do bad things happen to good people? Or where was God? Or how can a loving God allow these terrible things to happen to his children? Or, you know, if God really loved me, he wouldn't have allowed this to happen. How can God be fair? You don't read any of those statements that we hear today and we say today. Here's what they said. The apostles left the Sanhedrin rejoicing. Why? Because they had been counted worthy of suffering disgrace for the name. Their attitude was like, he gave his life for me. I just gave up the skin on my back and stomach for him. See, this is where as a pastor, and those of us as Christians here in comfortable America, I almost feel like we need to just get on our knees and repent because we're so soft. 
We're so overprotective, not willing to really stick our neck out very much for Jesus Christ. Here we live in one of the safest countries in the world and one of the safest communities in our country. And, and we're afraid somebody's not going to like us. We're afraid we won't be invited to someone's party. We're afraid that someone might make fun of us. And instead of coming home and saying, honey, I've got some great news. No bonus this year because of the name. Because I stood up for the name. Or honey, you know what? I'm not going to be part of that group anymore because of the name. Or honey, I was rejected for that promotion because of the name. I refuse to be unethical. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Instead of reacting that way, we start questioning God's fairness and wondering how a loving God could allow bad things to happen to good people. So what else did they do? Well, Acts chapter 5, verse 42, day after day in the temple courts and from house to house. By the way, this is after they've been flogged. Notice they didn't go to a different city. You know where they went? Back to where they were arrested. (laughs) Back to the temple where they got in trouble in the first place. And so day after day in the temple courts and from house to house, they never stopped teaching and proclaiming the good news that Jesus is the Christ. This is so convicting to me. You know, I read that, but then I come back to our little world where we're so worried about saying anything about Jesus because someone might kind of snicker at us. So as we begin to wrap things up this morning, I would like to suggest some boldness baby steps. And if you've been in Dave Ramsey's financial class, he suggests some baby steps. These are baby steps. And compared to what the apostles went through, these steps are nothing, but we've got to start someplace. The church the ecclesia, the gathering, the assembly. It's been handed to us. And one day, listen, we will hand the church off to the next generation. And so we need to rethink our boldness. So here are some suggestions. Baby step number one. Bold is deciding to say something when it would be easier to say nothing. And I know that's not very specific, but we run into these types of situations all the time. You know, I could say something, but oh, I'm afraid I might offend them, or I'm afraid they might not like me. And or, or the most common excuse we use is, well, I just don't want to push them away. We like that one right there. You see, our threshold of pain and our threshold of fear and discomfort is so staggeringly low when it comes to suffering any little ridicule for our faith. Bold is deciding to say something when it would be easier to say nothing. And, and if you're praying for boldness, as, as I prayed this past week, here's, here, here's a pr- promise I, I make to you. I promise that if you pray for boldness in sharing Christ, you will be handed opportunities. And boldness for us will simply be taking advantage of the opportunities that present themselves. Secondly, second boldness baby step. Bold is creating opportunities. It's Pam Fletcher. She comes to our late service. It's Pam Fletcher. This is a real, true story three weeks ago. It's Pam Fletcher witnessing to her uh, grandfather two weeks before he died. And there was the very strong potential that he would get upset. But Pam was bold. She created the opportunity. And do you know what happened? This man that had never had any interest nor desire for spiritual things and was sometimes even antagonistic, he softened. (laughs) 
tears came to his eyes. And our own Pam Fletcher prayed with him and he, he received Jesus as his Savior. That's boldness. That's creating opportunities to witness. Now, are some people going to be offended? Oh, yeah. On occasion. But I guarantee you, you will not be flogged. You will not be fed to the lions. You will not be arrested or thrown in jail. You won't even be put in a higher tax bracket. So boldness is creating an opportunity. And this should be the new normal. You hear a lot about the new normal. This is how the gospel made it out of the first century to us today. And, and to fall short of that is to betray the people who gave their lives so that we could have this message. And really, I mean, think about this a minute. Aren't you glad that somebody was bold with you? Aren't you grateful that the pastor you had maybe years ago, <clears throat> maybe he's gone now, but, but aren't you glad that your pastor was bold with you? Aren't you grateful that your grandma was bold? Aren't you grateful that somebody kept inviting your kids to church? And aren't you grateful that they kept inviting you? Sure, it might have ruined your Sunday morning fishing and camping routine. Or it might have ruined your Sunday morning routine of sleeping in and then having a Sunday morning brunch. But, but if you come to know Jesus, that's a pretty good trade-off. You know, there's some of us that still believe John 3.16, where God loved the world. And, and, and by the way, the world, that's you. It's not church people. There weren't any church people when this started. For God so loved the world that he gave something. He didn't ask for something. He didn't require anything. He gave what was most precious to him, his son, that whosoever, and that whosoever, whoever is anybody in the world, which means us, whoever believes in him will not perish. And that means that there is an eternity beyond this life. Jesus came to solve the mystery of eternity and give everlasting life. So we're going to learn to be bold. We're going to say something when it would be easier to say nothing. And, we're, and then we're going to go out and create some opportunities because that's what we've been called to do. That's how the church escaped the first century. And that's how the church will escape the 21st century and be passed on to the 22nd century. Let's pray together. Father, forgive us for just our lack of boldness. And I know what I've said, and I know what we all say. Well, but we're living in different times, and we are. You know, you got to be careful these days, yeah. <laughs> but Lord, in that first century... I don't think, really, when it comes down to it, I, I, I don't think our country is any more cruel than Rome was. And so here we excuse ourselves and say, well, but, you know, things are totally different. But back then, you know, if violations were made, then Rome could put them in the arena with the lions, wild beasts. There would be the flogging, all that kind of stuff. And, and here... Lord, we have become so overprotective and, and in our Christianity, and we just don't want to push ourselves on anybody else. And, and I know there needs to be a sensitivity. Lord, there are those that have hurt the cause of Christ uh, simply by just being <clears throat> overbearing and, and ugly. And Lord, we don't want to be ugly Christians. But Father, we do want to be bold Christians in the name of Jesus. And Father, I pray that 
you would help us this week as we have opportunities. Lord, that we would say something when it would be easier to not say anything. And, and God, that we would just kind of create some opportunities and we would be sensitive. We would be loving. We would not be judgmental. We would not be Bible thumpers. We would not be in their face, but we would lovingly tell them about Jesus, that <clears throat> Jesus loves them so much that he gave his life so that they could have salvation. And, and Lord, you solve the riddle of eternity. And, 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 and Father, you give us opportunities to come to know you. And your word says we need to do so while there is still daytime, while there's still light. And God, I pray that this week you would give us those specific opportunities to share Christ and make a difference. Give us boldness. Give us boldness. Lord, I say it one more time. I pray it. Would you give us boldness in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ? And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen. You've been listening to the Sunday morning message broadcast from Church of God Holiness in El Dorado Springs. Our messages are archived at www.eldochurch.com or to order compact discs or DVD videos of the messages, call the church at 417-876-2200. Thank you for listening.